this episode, I'm going to answer all the questions I got. <laughs> I got, I got a lot from the uh, beginner's guide to psychedelic medicine. I had a lot of people write in, which is fantastic. And um, honestly, I, I, I would say probably 80% of the questions I got were answered in the presentation. Um, I'm going to go over all the questions, uh, almost all of them, because some were obviously fucking stupid. <laughs> but the good ones, and there were a lot of really good ones. I'm going to go over those, and I'm going to try and get some clarity, help people understand exactly what they need to know. All right. So first, how much does an underground guide cost? This is the number one question I got. I probably should have put this in the presentation. Generally speaking, there isn't a price, but what I see right now, and it is July 2022, as I record this, most guides are around 1500 to 2000 per session. Now, that's just a general guideline. Uh, sort of asking how much an underground guide costs is sort of like asking how much a car costs. It depends on a lot of factors. Uh, you can find guides who are doing it for a thousand or you might even be able to negotiate less. Um, and you're going to find a lot of guides who are well above two thousand. Um, I know guides charging three to five thousand per session. Again, and it varies widely depending on the medicine, how much integration work they have before and after. There's a lot of factors that can go into price. Um, I do one of the main, not main, one of the barriers for some people on this is price. The thing I would tell you is find a guide and then tell them your financial situation. Uh, tell them what you can afford. Some guides are willing to work with you. Some aren't. The ones that aren't will probably know guides who are willing to, to help you out in some way. Um, like for example, I know for a fact the guide that I know in Nashville that takes blind referrals, she is often willing to give pretty substantial discounts to people who have serious financial hardship or, you know, first responders or nurses. You know, if someone's making 70 grand a year, obviously they can't pay her two grand for a session or probably can't. Uh, I know she's been willing to work with people that I've referred to her, her uh, uh, referred to her. So um, that's a discussion I would definitely have with the guide. Second question, how long should you wait in between sessions? This is a, a great question. Um, it depends on the medicine and it depends on you. So let me go through super quick. MDMA, generally speaking, uh, to be actually, to be super clear, there is no hard and fast guidance on any of this. Uh, we are at the very beginning of the modern psychedelic medicine revolution. And there is so much study to be done and um, data to be gathered. But right now, MDMA, I would recommend probably three months between sessions, usually. Uh, and I'll tell you where I got that from. Uh, Sasha Shulgin, who's the, uh, and his wife, Anna, they're like, uh, Sasha's the guy who basically did the modern synthesis of MDMA, not, not the first one, but the modern one. And um, he recommends about three months between sessions. Uh, he thinks you can burn out, um, essentially burn out your serotonin receptors. I'm being a little simplistic, but that's, that's close enough. Uh, I will tell you, I know a lot of MDMA guides like another who I worked with. Um, uh, she's willing to, um, to do sessions much more aggressively than that in certain situations with certain people. So for example, with me, I had a, a long, strong history of talk therapy. I had a great integration practice. 
And on my first MDMA session, it was real clear. <laughs> I had a lot of trauma. And I just unlocked a Pandora's box. And I wasn't waiting three months. Uh, that just wasn't going to happen. So Anne helped me um, uh, sort of, you know, get on the right supplement regimen to make sure physically I could recover quickly. And, I, you know, I'm young and healthy and strong and all that. And, um, and then I did my next session a month later. And then I did my third session. Let's see, first was in September, then October. And then my next session was, I believe, in early January, which would have been two and a half months, right? So I went one month, two and a half months. And then the, the next one after that was two months. I went a very, those are my first one, two, three, four sessions. Very aggressive. Um, at that four session, I could tell, I could feel a little bit. I was physically and mentally worn down. Um, so that uh, I took uh, quite a ways off after that, uh, I think four months. Um, but uh, uh, so for MDMA, I, I would, four sessions a year, generally speaking, is about the max with some exceptions. Um, now, for other medicines, it's totally different. For psilocybin, uh, I mean, you can, for, like, you can do a, a small session, maybe like two grams, and two weeks later, you can do another small session. Psilocybin, um, you can do quite a lot of over a short period of time. Now, it doesn't, it's not going to have a, uh, it, it doesn't do what MDMA might do or could potentially do um, and burn out, you know, your brain. But what, what can happen is if you do a lot, it, you're, you're, not, you're not giving yourself time to integrate the work. The problem with psilocybin is dealing with all the issues that come up, not really any physical issues. Um, I mean, look, I guess it's possible. It is definitely possible to do so much mushrooms in such a short time that it fucks you up. Yeah, of course. But like that would have to be an insane amount, um, an unreasonable amount. You can go fairly aggressively with psilocybin if you have a good experience guide, you know why you're doing it, and you're taking the time and doing the work in between sessions, you can, definitely. LSD is more like psilocybin than MDMA. Ayahuasca, you can do quite a bit. Um, I mean, I know people who, one of my main mentors, when he started with ayahuasca, and um, he told me he went you know, down to the jungles of Peru, and, and this is... 20 years ago. And uh, I think he, he was there for three months. Uh, it was something like two or three months, his first trip. And like, let's say 60 days. And he did ayahuasca like 40 of those 60 days, which seems mind-blowing to me. But ayahuasca is one of those medicines where you can kind of take a deep extended immersion and it will work. Um, uh, now, granted, he, of course, had some of the best guides in the world, et cetera. So that's not just, you don't just do that with your local 7-Eleven shaman. What are some other medicines that people might do? I, uh, uh, and a lot of medicines will have a multi-session a multi program within a short period. I, boga, I, first time I did ayahuasca, I drank three nights in a row, which is pretty conventional. Boga is often two to three nights in a row, depending on various factors or more. People will sometimes do 5-MAO, very close. For the most part, ask your guide. Uh, your guide should have very good um, instruction on this. Don't just guess. This is a thing you were, this is why you have a guide. Next question. What do you do to microdose and how do you microdose? All right, great question. This is one of those things where uh, even though I'm, I'm pretty good at being a beginner, I kind of really didn't dive into microdosing in the um the, the session, and I probably should have, or the, in the, 
the, the beginner's guide. So microdosing is when you take a very small amount of a substance. Uh, let's let's say with psilocybin because that's the most conventional microdose. So um, man, I should I should I would say I'm gonna show you a little bit of psilocybin, like what a microdose looks like. But then I'm like, yeah, maybe I don't want to be on video with a bunch of legal drugs, <laughs> even though I'm not worried about it. There's still it wouldn't be the the smartest thing for me. Uh, so uh, microdosing means you're taking a tiny amount that is should be not physically perceptible but will trigger or cause um, some mental, psychological, emotional changes, right? So for example, I usually microdose 15 to 25 milligrams of psilocybin, which is honestly a tiny amount. Like if, if I were to put that in your hand, you would think I, like I sprinkled like the amount of salt you might put on eggs or something, like a tiny amount. Uh, almost the first time I, I did that, I was like, this isn't going to have an effect. This doesn't make any sense. I was wrong. It did. But it looks like such a small amount that it can't possibly have an impact. Um, uh, I like that amount. I've tried I've uh, tried a lot, you know, uh, 30. All, uh, basically everything, every portion on the fives up to 100, 195, 90, 85. It, like I've tried them all. In my experience, generally 15 to 25 works best for me. I just need a little bit, right? And I usually take it in the morning and I use what's called the Stamets stack. I, I think I talked about this in the guide. Uh, uh, Paul Stamets, who's kind of the, the modern godfather of mushrooms, he recommends um, uh, use, using psilocybin, lion's mane mushrooms, which are um, uh, help neuroplasticity, help you essentially grow new neurons, and uh, niacin, which uh, he says helps delivery of psilocybin. So I, I will put those three together. I will take them at like, eight in the morning, often with some kombucha and, um, or tea, whatever I'm drinking. And then I just go about my day. Uh, I usually do that in a given conventional week. I'll do that twice. I usually microdose uh, Tuesdays and Saturdays. Those are my main Brazilian jiu-jitsu days. And I've found that it really helps me in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It helps me in a lot of ways, but um, uh, I'm like 10 or 20% better. Uh, I, I think less and I flow more. And so those are the two days a week I do it. Uh, the, I think I talked about this in the guide. There's, a, there's two really good courses on microdosing. One is by Third Wave, uh, and the other one is by um, Double Blind. They're both psychedelic magazines, uh, or, you know, uh, sites, content sites. Uh, they, I think the courses cost money. They might, it might be like 20, 30 bucks. I know Double, or, uh, Double Blind's course is like 30 35 last time I checked I forget what um third waves is third wave has a massive blog post about microdosing and the course I've looked at the course the course is good it's really good but it's not that much better than the blog post it's sort of like if you really want someone to hold your hand and tell you exactly what to do just spend 30 bucks on the course if you're you're like me and you're like just give me you know 70% of the info and I'll figure out the rest then the blog post is more than good Question, next question. Can you microdose without a guide? Yeah, if you don't want to have a guide for psychedelic medicine, I would highly not recommend intense sessions. I would highly recommend just microdosing. Microdosing, I know plenty of people who are, for whatever reason, afraid to do a full-on intense uh, MDMA or psilocybin session, and instead they just microdose. They've been microdosing for a year, two years, and I've seen them make amazing, massive progress. It is, do not, don't be fooled by the fact that a tiny little amount 
uh, oh, well, that just probably means a tiny impact. No. Um, one of the things I found in my life is that doing a little bit consistently usually produces better results than doing a lot rarely. Microdosing totally fits into that. Um, uh, there's like, I forget, one of the, the sort of uh, iconic, almost uh, cliche memes in the hustle porn world is that like, if you get 1% better every day, it makes you like 300% better over the course of a year. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it, it's actually a lot. The math on that, because it seems like 1% is nothing, but you compound that over a year, it's actually a huge change. And they're, they're right on that. Um, microdosing kind of works like that in my experience. Like, it's not obvious to me whether the microdosing has been more impactful or the big sessions. Probably for me, the big sessions, because I've done quite a few of them, uh, and I really surrender and go deep, especially now. But there was a period where it was, for me, I think the microdosing might have been more important and impactful. Next question. What are the long-term risk factors for using psychedelics with regards to health, fitness, etc.? That's a great question. There is no comprehensive, um, highly reputable data on this, like a study. Not yet. Uh, but we do have a lot of information, a lot of anecdote. And we've seen, you can look at people who have done psychedelics as medicine and responsibly and, and look at their lives. Look at people like Paul Stamets or Stan Groff or uh, James Fadiman or uh, the Shulgans. Or, I mean, go down the list. There's a lot of people who have been doing these uh, substances as medicines and as uh, uh, mind expansion for decades. And for the most part, they're all pretty remarkable, amazing people. Um, now, does that mean there's no... The question is long-term risk factors, right? Each medicine can have its own specific acute risk factors like MDMA with SSRIs or psilocybin uh, with uh, potentially with... Um, um, schizophrenia, like if your history, if family has a long history of schizophrenia, so there's specific acute risk factors for each medicine that you should absolutely be aware of and take into account. But long-term risk factors for medicines that do not have those specific risk factors for you, um, it, it appears to be right now from the evidence that we have that not only are, are there, there are very, very few long-term risk factors. I should say that. Also, the cool thing is you don't have to take this stuff for the rest of your life. <laughs> this, that's part of, part of why I think these medicines have been so slow in the uptake commercially is because um, unlike most things that most medicines, and I say that in quotes, that pharmaceutical companies sell are not designed for you to get off them. They don't want you to get well because getting well means you stop paying them. Psychedelics, psychedelic medicine is essentially designed so that um, it, it, taking it medicinally, there's an endpoint. And I'm going to talk about this more. There are a lot of questions about this. But um, no, like uh, you shouldn't be on MDMA the rest of your life. When I say be on, I mean like taking it some routine basis. Uh, these medicines are used either to address specific issues or to address um, issues. And then when you get through your cycle, you're done. Right now, you can always go back and take more for other reasons, but um, for the most part, I think the long-term risk factors are extremely low given the data and stuff that we know now. Now, the answer to that might be a little different for marijuana. 
I'm not, I don't consider, even though marijuana technically is kind of a psychedelic, I don't consider it a psychedelic medicine. And it's not really what I talk about here. That medicine kind of, or that substance kind of has its own um, body of research. So if you're asking about marijuana, like I'm not the dude to ask. Next question, what if I'm afraid of the quality of the psychedelics that an underground guide might use? Great, great question. Uh, I would ask them. I would ask them, how do you know this substance is pure or clean? Now, it depends what substance. Like if you're talking about mushrooms, a lot of guys I know grow their own. And so it's like, well, like, well I, I grew it. So they could, they could show you, you know, uh, how pure it is. Um, uh, the, the place I would worry is probably honestly with MDMA. Right, psilocybin uh, is pretty easy to get. LSD, um, sorry, some I, I like. I'm not used to censoring myself, and there's certain uh, people I know who work with these medicines that like. I have to be careful what I say and where I say I get it from because I, it's not like I'm doing anything. I don't need to worry about it, but I don't want to um, out someone who doesn't want to be outed. For the most part, LSD is pretty safe. It's it's not. Um, in terms of a, a, a cleanliness, right? Uh, the, the one that I, I can't get into why I know that, but um, for the most part, I wouldn't worry about LSD. MDMA is the one where uh, source and cleanliness is an issue. It absolutely is. Uh, most, you know, the street name for uh, MDMA is either ecstasy or molly. Most of what people get that they call ecstasy or molly, is, even if it is, it's not real pure. And... Um, uh, but oftentimes it's other substances, right? Maybe MDA, which is very similar molecularly to MDMA, but not the same. And um, I've seen that happen quite a few times. So what you can, there's two main things you can do. Ask your guide, right? Any good guide, most of the good guides I know, they took them time, but they eventually found a really good source that, that was able to, to get them pretty clean stuff. And a lot of the guides I know test their stuff. Right? So you can buy at-home test kits for almost any uh, drug, but especially MDMA. And so like, you put a little bit in, you shake it up or something, and it, like, if it's uh, pure, it turns purple in a lot of the kits. I, like, I even have some. And so uh, you can buy your own kit and take it. Like, every guy I know who's good would have no problem with that. Um, I actually know a guy who sent their stuff off to an actual lab. There are labs... Uh, I'm pretty sure they're in America, although I know there's one in Canada and I know there's some in Europe. You can send your illegal drugs off to labs and get them tested. And one of the guys I know did that and it came back like 96% pure for MDMA. So um, for her specific batch. So uh, I would ask. And then I would, if you're really worried about it, you can buy your own te uh, test kits. Um, it's another reason why I, I uh, my uh, the guys I use for psilocybin, they almost all grow their own except one. And that one uh, just feeds me the, that guy feeds me the full mushroom. So like it, it's pretty, pretty great. Like you can't, it's the mushroom and I can see there's purple veins in it. Like that's, you don't really need to test that. <clears throat> Next question. Are there psychedelics I can take while still on SSRIs or other antidepressants? Yes, there are. Uh, this is one of those questions where I know the answer. I'm not going to go in deep on it because there are so many weird caveats about this sort of stuff. Um, if you are worried about SSRIs, um, if you're on SSRIs or some sort of antidepressant, uh, MAOIs or whatever, um, 
and you want to do psychedelic medicine, there's two things I would do. And you can do one or both. The first one is uh, I would probably, this is me, I would taper slowly and safely, but taper off my antidepressants. Uh, just real quickly, um, you can look, that there's a lot of data out now that uh, SSRIs are, are at best useless and at worst counterproductive. I'm not a believer in them at all. And uh, I've never taken them for that reason. Because if you actually look at the data, if you don't just listen to people who are supposed to be experts, if you actually look at the data, it's never been good. And the last couple of years, I guess <laughs> um, they couldn't, I, I know, like a couple of years ago, I'd be like, oh, this sounds like a conspiracy theory. Now it's just a fact. The data is real clear. They don't work. So in uh, most people, there are some people who swear by them, whatever, good for them. But um, I'm not a believer. I would taper off. The other option is to talk to psychiatrists or um, a licensed. This is a place where I really would talk to a licensed medical pr practitioner who understands the interactions of antidepressants and psychedelics and ask them. So the, the one I know that I always talk to about this is Dr. Dan Engel. He wrote the book, The Dose of Hope, and he's or a dose of hope. And he's a psychiatrist um, and he's great. He knows this stuff cold. Um, now, he's not the easiest to get a hold of, but there's plenty others. He's not the only one. So next question. Are psychedelics addictive? Do I need to worry about getting hooked on them? Another great question. I love just giving short, quick answers and moving on. But then like the people who uh, who in this space who are very um, vigilant about edge cases, always like, you can't just say that. And I'm like, yeah, you can. No, I'm going to tell you, no, they're not addictive. Okay, now that's not precise. That's mostly true. It's not precisely true. Um, there absolutely are examples of people being addicted to MDMA. Now, the, all of those people are using ecstasy um, in a sort of club party environment, right? And so if, if you're using MDMA medicinally with a guide, um, then I don't know of any examples of where it got addictive then. That might, they might exist. Um, but I wouldn't worry about it. If you're, you know, taking a couple grams of it every weekend at some party, okay, it's a whole different thing, right? I've never heard an example of someone being addicted to mushrooms. I'm sure there's some edge case. Uh, same with LSD. The, you know, look, the, if you look at some of the people, the edge cases in the 60s, people who were seriously into LSD, you might be able to make an argument that they were at least, if not literally, at least figuratively addicted to it. Okay, fine. Like none of us are those people. Um, if you are using a guide for this medicine and not handling it yourself, not buying it yourself, I think I think there is effectively no risk of addiction, right? And I'm talking about biochemical, physical addiction. Um, I would say no. Does that mean literally no? No. That's not a thing I've ever seen or heard of. Uh, those exist only in edge cases. If you're worried about that, like if you have an addictive personality, um, then the way to avoid that issue is go very slowly, have great guides, don't handle the medicine yourself, um, focus on doing the work. In fact, let me, that's why this question is hard for me to answer because I actually, all right, I'm going to tell you a quick story. This is what I would worry about in an addiction. So I know someone, this person um, battled addiction. Like actually they were addicted to, I can't remember, but like, um, 
conventional drugs, whether I can't remember if it was cocaine or heroin or alcohol or like all of them. Um, but uh, they were like sort of very conventionally addict, like the type that you would see on the show Intervention, right? Um, they they kind of, uh, they work through their addiction issues. I don't want to say, uh, beat those issues, right? And then found, this person started with 5-MeO-DMT, which is, and uh, they got super into that. And um, I remember they came to me for advice years ago, came to me for advice. And it looked to me like they went from one addiction, right? A destructive, you know, alcohol, cocaine, whatever addiction to um, a positive addiction. They were addicted to the peak experience of 5-MeO-DMT. Like they kept, now they always did it with a guide, right? All that sort of stuff, but they kept going back to it. And then also very worrisome. They wanted, they were just obsessed. This person was very entrepreneurial. Had started a bunch of businesses before. It's how they afforded all, like the amount of drugs this person bought was insane. And, Cause they, they were a very successful entrepreneur, had a ton of money. And so they were super obsessed with starting businesses in this space. And, and this is like after three months, six months or something of doing psychedelic medicine. Like you are not ready in any way, shape or form. I don't care who you are. If you're six months into doing your work on medicine, the only place you, thing you should be doing is doing your work. You shouldn't be talking about it to other people for the most part. Um, you definitely shouldn't be starting businesses in it, you know, or leading other people. Hell no. So uh, notice how I almost never use the word should and I did there. There's a reason that there's a reason why. Anyway, so um, that's I've seen that pattern or a pattern like that several times where people start down the medicine path journey and they make a little bit of progress and they get so excited. They want to essentially stop doing the work and start talking about the work and doing businesses in the work. That is the biggest issue I've seen in the, in the realm of addiction with psychedelics, right? That's what I would worry about with addiction. That's what I've seen. I have never seen. And again, my experience is not, does not encompass all experience in the world. I have never seen anyone or really heard of people getting addicted to psychedelics from using them in the medicinal space or medicinal way. I have seen a ton of people use psychedelic, the healing process of psychedelic medicine to get addicted to the peak experiences and, and talking about it instead of doing the work, which is just another form of distraction, honestly. Now, I know this has been a long answer. <laughs> it might be confusing. If, if you have follow-up questions on this, just ask. I'm happy to, to, to help on this. Next question. I've done MDMA many times in a party setting. Will it be different? I do it in a guided medicinal setting. Absolutely, it will be different. Now, I cannot speak from experience on this. I have never done any drugs in a party setting, so I don't really know the difference. But I know a lot of people who have done a lot of drugs uh, in party settings or a little bit of drugs in party settings who have also done medicinal psychedelics. And I can tell you every single one, basically, uh, maybe... There might be one or two exceptions, but every single one basically says that they, it's a totally different experience, especially MDMA. Like I know a lot of people who maybe did like uh, mushrooms or something at a concert and they did a mushroom session and said, yeah, like the, ex the physical experience was very similar, but what I took from it was different. For whatever reason, MDMA, I know a lot of people, uh, like I know one girl who was heavy in the rave party scene like 10 or 15 years ago and was doing like grams of MDMA a weekend, which is an insane amount. 
And uh, like, so if you talk about addiction, like that, she had a, a low key issue for a while. Uh, stopped it, got out. I don't even think she went to rehab. She just stopped and it was fine. But then she did um, an MDMA session. And, you know, in a session, you're taking anywhere from 125 to 175 grams generally of MDMA, milligrams of MDMA, like a very small, at most 200 milligrams. So, you know, very, very little compared to how much she, she would take when she'd go raving for a weekend. And um, she could not believe it was the same medicine. Like she almost didn't believe me. Um, or didn't believe the guide. She's like, this isn't the same. Like clearly, <laughs> and I was like, no, it was, it's the same. Um, so uh, I have seen a lot of that. And the reason is because it shows you how important set and setting are and how important intention are. Set and setting being your mindset, the environment you do it in, and the energy intention you come at it with can fundamentally change most aspects of your reaction and the impact on you, even if the neurological interactions are still the same. So and the biological interactions, and I tell you, for example, it's why you use an eye shade on MDMA, right? Because if it cuts off your visual cortex, which is you know anywhere from 90 to 50% of your uh, brain uh, power, um, it's a whole different experience. It means you got to turn inward, right? Next question. Can bipolar people safely do psychedelic medicine? This is a great question. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you two answers. The first one is the most important one. Don't ask me this. <laughs> like I'm, I'm really smart. And I know a lot of really smart, capable, experienced people, including doctors, uh, who are very, in all range of doctors, who are very experienced with this. But I'm not the dude. I'm not the expert of this. Right? Um, this is a question. If, you're, if you are bipolar... And you want to do psychedelic medicine, this is a thing where you need to go to multiple experts, I would, and get this answered for you specifically. Now, all that being said, the second answer I'm going to give you is um, the experts, I, I, you know, I have no bipolar issues, uh, no one in my family does, I don't have to worry about this, but every true expert, people I trust, has always told me that um, bipolar people can do some forms of psychedelic medicine, but they have to be very, very careful. It can interact in an extremely negative way with bipolarity in certain situations that like someone like me who doesn't have this issue don't have to worry about. So um, do not take this lightly if you are bipolar and you intend to do this medicine. Uh, yes, you can do it, but there's some medicines you want to stay away from and others you want to be very careful in the dosage and you need to talk to a serious expert about that before you do. Next question, can psychedelic medicine help me change certain behaviors like impulsivity, compulsive behaviors like OCD, ADD, et cetera? All right, I'm a, what, what I'm about to say is going to be controversial and not everyone will agree with. I'm going to tell you what I believe about this. You don't, you can, you're more than welcome to listen to other people who disagree with me. My answer is yes. Absolutely, psychedelic medicine can help you change those behaviors. And I'll tell you why, because I think for most people, Almost all of those behaviors are rooted in trauma. They are adaptive defenses to trauma. And if you think that sounds crazy, just go read the book uh, Scattered Minds by Gabor Mate. Gabor is um, one of the absolute badasses in the field of, of psychology the last 30 years. One of the few people I think really knows what he's talking about. And um, his basic premise in the, uh, in the book thesis in Scattered Minds is that ADD and OCD and most of these behavioral issues are all adaptive defenses to trauma, and I think he's right. 
And I have seen, I have only seen a ton of people I know who had, who were riddled with these issues and did serious psychedelic medicine and did their integration work and everything see almost all that go away. So now I'm not telling you that's, you know, gospel chapter and verse. A lot of people are going to disagree with me on that. That's going to be very controversial. I don't care what those people say. <laughs> I know what I've seen. And I know um, if I had, I don't really have those issues. I got a lot of other issues. If I had those issues, I would be right in psychedelic medicine. But that's me. Next question. Does psychedelic medicine help you heal from autoimmune issues and other chronic illness? I'm going to give you almost the same answer I gave on uh, the OCD ADD question. This is, again, what I'm about to say is not, uh, is very controversial. A lot of people disagree with, I think those people are wrong, but whatever. Like we, uh, uh, this is not considered established uh, 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 fact yet. I believe almost, almost, not all, almost all, or at least a large portion of autoimmune issues and chronic issue, uh, illness issues, things like Epstein-Barr, chronic fatigue. Um, I mean, there's so many. I believe that a lot of those, if not the vast majority, are caused by trauma, by unresolved trauma in the body. Uh, there are a lot of very, very good scientists and doctors who agree with that. They are not the majority yet. But like all great, all great ideas start in the minority before they become the majority. This, I think, within our lifetime, we're going to see uh, everyone realize this is true. And it's going to become one of those things where it's like, people are like, how do people not know that? Um, if you have autoimmune and chronic illness issues, I'm not going to tell you to do psychedelic medicine or that psychedelic medicine will fix them. I'm just going to tell you I've seen an endless array of people with those types of issues, especially the really vague ones like chronic fatigue or, you know, gut issues, like, like very generalized gut issues, all that kind of stuff. Do one or two or three psychedelic medicine sessions and see that shit go away forever. Now, now a lot of those issues are, uh, let me be real clear. A lot of the autoimmune chronic illness issues are heavily diet related. Right. So what will happen is uh, and I've, I can think of a specific friend that this like it was crazy to watch it happen. So he he had a lot of emotional issues, a lot of trauma, did a, I think it was like two psychedelic sessions, resolved a lot of that stuff, felt a lot of those emotions, let them go and essentially liked himself a lot more. And as a result, started eating better and his autoimmune issue went away. Right. So it wasn't the psychic. It's not that the psychedelic medicine cures the autoimmune. It's not that straight of a line. What happens is that if you use the psychedelic medicine to address your trauma, then either the autoimmune or chronic illness will, will, is linked to the trauma or it is linked to something that trauma is causing. Right. So it's either first, second or th sometimes third order effect. I have seen this so many times in so many people. It's breathtaking. Yeah. So yeah, I, I actually think it autoimmune psychedelic medicine can absolutely be a tool in the process of addressing these issues. Either it, for some people it's a direct line, for others it's you know second and third order effects. But hell yeah, I can. All right. Next question. I saw you what you said about the different medicines, but I still don't know which one to do. How can I decide? Um, 
<laughs> this is like a question that at first I was like, what the hell's wrong? Like, I have something else to add. But then I realized it's actually a really good question. What, what they're asking, I think, without realizing is um, they're saying, I don't know how to intellectually decide. Right. That, that even if they have a bunch more information and I see, actually, I see this a lot. It happened to me in certain ways, um, especially at the beginning, because what the hell do I know about all these different now I've done almost all of them. I understand. But before you really get it, it's hard to make a decision because you don't have a basis upon which to make a decision. So this is going to sound super weird. And a lot of the people that I knew in psychedelics who kind of mentored me and guided me said shit like this at the beginning of my journey. And I looked at them like, what the hell are you talking about? But I'm going to tell you, and if you get it, great. If you don't, that's okay. I would do, learn everything you can. But if you get to the point where learning more info isn't helping you, then I would just do the medicine that you feel called to. Right. What the hell does called to mean? I didn't understand before. Now I get it. In essence, after you've learned everything you can learn, um, what does your gut tell you? What do you feel? Feel, not think. Feel. If you don't know, like you, you might look and say, oh, yeah, that's clearly the right one. Then do that. But if you're looking and you don't know, go with your gut. That's what being called really means. It's not exactly the same, but it's close enough, which it's so funny now thinking about it now. um, My guides would tell me this and I didn't understand what they meant. And it was frustrating to me because a huge part of why psychedelic medicine has been so effective for me is because it helped connect me to my feelings. Right. So I was very disconnected from my feelings when I started this. (laughs) And so they were telling me it's like. I didn't really fully understand this, but basically what was going on is I'm coming to them to learn how to feel and they're telling me to feel <laughs> I'm like, well, thanks asshole. That doesn't help at all. Um, but part of the experience is learning how to do something you're not good at. And so I know if you're very frustrated with that answer, I get it. I totally do. Um, but that's, that's the best advice I can give you. If you've downloaded all the information, and you still don't know how to decide. Next question. If I have addiction issues, which psychedelics should I use? That's a great question. Uh, I would talk to a guide and a doctor, like a psychiatrist who knows psychedelics about this. Um, generally speaking, I said this in the, um, in the, the, the guide, but I want to be real clear about this. If you have like, I'm not sure what the person means by addiction issues. If you are addicted to something right now, like let's say you're addicted to heroin. Generally speaking, a boga tends to be the medicine that's best for helping people get off addiction issues. Um, not the only one, just the, that's kind of the go-to. If by what the, the question means, I, meaning you have an addictive personality, um, then I would talk to your guide. Uh, I do know people who had an issue with meth addiction and they were afraid to use MDMA which I get it because it's methyl dioxy methamphetamine. It's not exactly a methamphetamine, but it has, the MA is meth, in it is uh, methamphetamine. So they were a bit worried about that. Um, but again, I think I said in another answer to another question about, um, I can't remember which one it was, but the, the addiction issues that I would worry about is like if you get super into something and you like... Um, 
like, you know, I, once I kind of found this modality, I went all in, right? I, I probably went a little overboard at the beginning. But um, it, it, so if you're like, if you can get obsessive about things, if that's what you mean by addiction issues, then I wouldn't worry so much about the medicine itself. Pick whatever medicine works for you. What I would worry about is having a good, inter- a good stru- support structure around you and a good integration system. Because the, the way I see psychedelics go wrong with some people, I definitely talk about this on a different question, is that someone will get a little bit of healing and a little bit of knowledge. And that's when they're most dangerous because they think they know a lot more than they do. And they think they've done a lot more than they've done. And so they'll either quit. It's, you know, like the, the iconic, uh, you know, Luke Skywalker uh, and Yoda thing, right? Like he, he hangs out on the, on, uh, with Yoda for like a couple of weeks and he's like, oh, I'm a Jedi. And Yoda's like, you're not ready. And he's like, ah, I'm fine. I'll be fine. And he goes off and loses his arm and you know, his hand and all that. And that's what I see a lot. And I, I almost went down that path a little bit, but thankfully I was old enough and mature enough. And I had a strong, I, my wife was a great support system. I had a great integration system and I had really good mentors. and I listened to them, which is not a thing I would have done. That's why I always say, I'm glad I came to psychedelics when I did, which was, you know, early forties. Even my mid to late 30s, I might have, I don't think I was ready. I would have been reckless. So if that's what you mean generally by addiction issues, get your system around you set and get your guides, get good guides who will, who will I needed guides who would be real firm with me, right? Not everyone needs that, but I, I do. So <laughs> next question, how can I guide myself through psychedelic healing session if I have to do that? All right, so I was real clear in the presentation don't guide yourself. This person's asking if I have to do that. So I, I, I'm going to give two answers. The first thing I'm going to tell you, I'm going to challenge if that's true, right? If I have to, I've heard a lot of people be like, well, I, you know, I can't find a guide. And I'm like, well, I'll connect you to one, which I said in the thing. And I'll say it again. If you reach out to me, if you want a connection. And then it's funny, this happens all the time. Someone will reach out. Someone who says desperate for a guy, can't find a guy. Reach out to me. Like, I'm like, okay, I got two that'll take blind referrals, which is unheard of. Like, as far as I know, I'm the only dude who does this. There's probably others. But the only well-known public figure is publicly saying, I'll refer you to people. Like, Michael Pollan doesn't do this shit. You know, Tim Ferriss doesn't. And I, I, I'm not, uh, I, Tim's my friend. I love Tim. I'm not uh, upset at that. Uh, they have good reasons not to. I'm just saying, like, it's, it's a, a risk I'm taking. I mean, the guy's taking more risk because they're treating people. But nonetheless, right? And so they'll, they'll reach out and I'll send them the info to like, let's say the person in Nashville or New York, and they'll be like, well, I don't want to travel there. <laughs> fuck off. The fuck, man? Like, I, the, the insane, or it's too expensive, or it's this, or it's that. It's like, okay, then, then don't do it, right? So I would challenge if I have to. Now, let's say someone lives in, I don't know in Shanghai and they're locked down they can't leave their place. Okay, fine. Then I, I get how you can't come to America, right? Okay. Uh, but a lot of people who, the, the obstacles they say to, to either finding or going to a guide are not really that big obstacles. They're just making excuses for themselves to not do the medicine, which is fine. You don't need to make excuses. Just don't do it. Um, so I would actually question if you have to. Now let's, let's put that aside. Let's say you do. There is a, a legit reason it's not an excuse. Um, all right, I'll tell you what I would do. Um, this, I, this is why I'm thinking about it deeply. I would, so ideally, if you're doing this, you have a therapist. Let's say you're stuck somewhere and you can't physically get somewhere. 
if you have a therapist on Zoom or someone you really trust that can hold space, I would see if I couldn't be on Zoom with them. You know, like uh, I've had, you know, I've, I've done therapy. I do therapy on Zoom. It's great. Works fantastic. I, I like in person better, but it's still really good. It, it's 80% is good. So if you can have someone there, there on Zoom that you can talk to, it's not going to be the same thing, but it, it, it will address most of the issues, right? Like what if I, you know, I need to talk to someone, I need to say something, I need someone there in some way. They can't be there physically, so I would take extra caution on setting up your physical space, making sure everything's safe. You know, you got a totally protected environment. Nothing can happen, you know, et cetera. Like, like don't go do this camping, right? Because, uh, uh, like, like I, I have a house right by the Great Smoky Mountain National Forest. And someone's like, oh, do you ever go in the forest and do this? I'm like, no. What the hell? What if I was on three grams of mushrooms and a bear came into my camp? <laughs> that would be Good Lord, like I can't, that's, no, don't do that. So like, just make sure your physical environment is very safe and then get someone on Zoom. It doesn't have to be a, a serious professional guy, although, man, most of the guys I know would probably do that. Uh, they might even charge less, honestly. That's the only thing I can think of. Because um, having someone there is really important. Let me, th I'll come back to this if I can think of anything else. Next question, can my friend and I guide each other in psychedelic sessions? Yeah, I mean, I guess. Like this, again, not ideal, right? Um, if you're going to do this, I would spend quite a bit of time reading as much as I could on, on being a psychedelic guide. And there's not a lot out there. I would go find it all and read it. All of it. Um, just because it is not an – there's a lot of – the best guides – I have had a lot of different guides sit for me and they're, it's not like just a warm body. They're different. And the best guides have something that's very different than um, the ones that weren't that good. And it's hard to describe and explain. Uh, so it, it is possible, yes, but like you got to take it very seriously and I would learn as much as I could about it uh, before I did it. I would not recommend this. The ideal situation is work with an experienced guide. If you cannot, for some reason, having a friend there with you is better than nothing. Next, do you do psychedelic medicine in group sessions, like with other people around doing it as well? I do not. I do not at all. I hate that. Um, I, I, am, I am very much against that. Now, a lot of caveats, right? So it, it depends on the medicine. Ayahuasca is often done in, in group settings and circles. I have never done ayahuasca like that. I just paid my guide more and did it myself, like, with, you know, with just me and, and the guide. I am not a fan of group stuff. And the reason why is because I feel like, on, not I feel like, what happens on psychedelics is I am very open. I am very emotionally, energetically open. And I don't want to absorb anyone else's stuff, nor do I want, uh, I don't want to dump my stuff on them. I don't want to deal with anyone else's shit when I'm in that state. I want to focus on myself. And so I don't like group sessions. Now, I don't like that. There are a lot of people who do, and, and good ones too, like really good, very experienced good guides who will often do group sessions. So I'm not, I don't want to be like, oh, they're all bad. You should never do them. No, that's not true. Um, it's just not a thing that I've ever done or, or probably will do anytime soon. Um, now, that being said, some of the people I know, like I know a couple of guides out there who um, I don't think I think are irresponsible, and 
not coincidentally, they love group sessions. I mean, I know some people who I swear, they just get around and do drugs with their friends and tell themselves they're being enlightened. They, they love group sessions, right? So, so maybe part of my issue with group sessions is a lot of the people I know who focus on them are like the biggest spiritual bypass, irresponsible people I know in the space. Um, but it's not a thing that I do now. There are good people who do it, but there are also people who, meaning experienced and capable and, and uh, people, but there are a lot of people who don't. So, what exactly happens when you take MDMA? What's it feel like? Uh, what happens in the brain? So, I would go to tuckermax.com. I wrote a piece about my first two MDMA sessions. It's like 9,000 words. <laughs> you can't, like, that's everything I have to say on that. Generally speaking, what happens? And this is the highest level explanation, and it's a little bit simplistic. The MDMA triggers your brain to dump all its serotonin at once, like to flood your brain with serotonin, and you feel the deepest love and safety uh, that you have ever felt. That triggers your body. That's like, oh, it's safe for me to feel all these repressed emotions, and they all kind of come up, right? That's basically, simplistically, what happens on MDMA. Um, anything else, I would, I would, if you really need to understand deeper, there's actually... There's great books about it. There's great stuff out there that can really explain deeply the biochemical processes. I don't find understanding that. I mean, I, I understand them. It doesn't really add anything. Um, it's sort of like, imagine watching NASCAR and then being like, hold on. So explain, uh, you know, the piston valves to me. It's like, okay, piston valves are interesting, but piston valves don't actually have much to do with the race, assuming that they're working, right? Like they're two completely different worlds. They, they, in influence each other clearly but um they're not really related or they're not uh relevant that relevant to each other so that's kind of the deep uh, uh physiological neurochemical stuff going on in mdma is interesting not all that relevant to using it as a as a medicine and doing the emotional work that makes sense next question i want to do psychedelics but i'm afraid of doing something illegal okay yeah and should I wait for these to become illegal before I do them? That's up to you for to decide. Um, so now I talked about the guide. There, there are legal options, right? There are psychedelic churches. I know there's an MDMA church in Texas because I know the dude who started it. Um, I know that there's a, a couple of the, I Actually, I know three people. Yeah, three people in Texas who started psychedelic churches, which is kind of crazy. That's a lot. Uh, and then, uh, uh, so you can do them legally in America. The, uh, psilocybin is legal in Jamaica. Uh, you can do ayahuasca and iboga and a few other things in various places in Central and South America that are legal enough. I, I don't care. Uh, I'm a big believer that if I'm doing something that doesn't hurt or impact someone else, that the government has no fucking business in it. So I think the fact that these are illegal is stupid beyond all measure and is uh, an intrusion on my freedom. And, you know, I'm not real big on people telling me what to do. <laughs> not my thing. So I don't care. Um, now that being said, you know, I don't sell this stuff. I don't guide. I don't do all that. That's really for different reasons. It's not about legality. Um, this is a question only you can answer. I don't care if it matters to you. You got to answer that for yourself. Even if I do everything like you say in the guide, what can go wrong if I do psychedelic medicine? This, this is a great question. This is the question you should be asking. That's a question I like to ask. Like, you know, what, what's the worst case scenario? What can go wrong? How can this harm me? Even if it's a thing I know I want to do, right? So I'm going to tell you a story basically about the worst case scenario. So, um, you know, I, uh, I had done, 
about three sessions of MDMA at this point. And my mother-in-law, my wife's mom, who I, I get along with great, actually. I get along better than, with, than my wife does. Uh, you know, like the trope about, oh, you're a terrible mother-in-law. It doesn't apply to me. My mother-in-law is fantastic. And um, <laughs> she, she saw the change in me. And she said, this is like a 65-year-old country woman, like a red state country woman, right? Uh, you know, um, like posting memes from Fox News, country woman, like that type. And I love her, an amazing woman, but, you know, loves Cracker Barrel, that type. So smart, though. Like a lot of people, all oh, those people are stupid. No, they're not stupid. You're an idiot. She's very smart. But red state, Fox News. Um, she came to me after my third session, saw the change in me, and told me, asked me to connect her to a guy because she wanted to do this. <laughs> I was fucking flabbergasted, right? Like that was like, what? Really? Granny, really? And she's like, yeah, no. I, I, there's nothing you could have told me that, that I would have guessed that she would have done this. Because this is the type of woman who, uh, her daughter started therapy after she met me. <laughs> Not because she met me, but like, Whatever. And she's, she got upset at my wife. Like, only crazy people do therapy. Like, she's, she had that approach. And she wanted to do MDMA therapy. And I was, you know, blown away. So, you know, I, I, I didn't know all of the stuff I know now. But I, I repeated all the stuff my mentors had told me. And all this sort of stuff. And, and you know, walked her through it. I'm like, this is no joke. Things might get, uh, you know, harder before they get easier. She wanted to do it. And uh, she asked me to actually be there with her. Right. You know, with the guide, of course, um, but kind of like, you know, moral support. I, she wanted her daughter there, but Veronica didn't want to do it because <laughs> those two are like cats fighting. It's horrible. And so um, anyway, so I sat with, I sat in and she did, you know, she did the medicine. She's like, of course, hilarious. Like uh, she takes it and like puts an eye shade on, lays down. And this is not a woman who sits still. And so like. I mean, it couldn't have been seven minutes after she put the eye shade down. She like rips the eye shade off, sits up. She's like, all right, it's not working. And the guy's like, Cindy, it's been seven minutes. <laughs> she like looks and she's like, seven minutes? Like, I thought it had been an hour. Like, no, lay back down. And, you know, a few things like that. And then I told her, I'm like, it's going to sneak up on you. And it did. And I could see her body. She's one of those who hold very tense whole like her whole body relaxed it was the first time i've ever seen her to that point physically relaxed and she's like oh my god and she like i see what you mean tucker oh my god this is so beautiful and and she like went on like that for about five minutes and then she got quiet and not like a little bit quiet like she like froze and like there was a point where like i kind of looked at the guy like i was wondering if she was breathing she wasn't moving and um uh man things turned like she uh she got very um she started breathing and then breathing heavy and then moaning and not like a little bit of moaning i don't know if you ever heard what a wounded animal sounds like that kind of moan and then she started screaming and not a little bit of screaming not kind of screaming like um Imagine the worst blood-curdling scream you've ever heard in a horror movie. It was way worse. It was way worse. This was, this was the worst thing I've ever heard coming out of a human. This was a true... This was the scream of someone who thought they were dying. And it didn't stop. She just kept going. 
She just kept screaming at the fucking top of her lungs in the most blood-curdling um, way I've ever heard. And it, it fuck, man, was it intense. Uh, this was at a place where um, I just assumed the neighbors were going to call the cops. Like, I started really, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, there's nothing to do. I'm not going to wake her out of it, right? Like, this is what she has to go through. And so... Um, I start thinking, like, what am I going to tell the cop, the sheriffs? Because we were kind of out. What am I going to tell? But there were there are enough people around that I'm like, oh, well, they can hear this. And they're going to call the sheriff. What am I going to tell the sheriff? <laughs> I'm, like, coming up with stories. And after about 10 minutes of screaming, blood cur- no one ever called the cops out, incidentally. But, but I actually did seriously come up with a story. Um, and so... Uh, I just, the story I came up with was uh, I was going to tell the cops that a, a stupid loser friend of mine had brought a pot brownie over like months ago and I forgot about it. I put it in my fridge and forgot about it and she ate it and, and uh, she was freaking out. And I actually, because I know cops, I actually went and got a plastic bag and put some like cocoa powder in it and put it like in the trash because I knew the cop would wear the bag, right? Like, uh, and so... I shouldn't probably tell the story because now cops are going to know I'm going to outsmart them. But um, that's how that's how for sure I was that like the cops were coming. Anyway, she sat up. I don't know if you ever seen someone that has a look of real pure shock on their face. I have. I, I've um, one time I pulled up on an accident on the highway that had just happened, and they were like, it was bad. Uh, and the, I remember the look of the face of this one woman specifically. She had the same look. It was shy. It was real shock. And I grabbed her hand and I said, Granny, you're safe. You're okay. And she was kind of staring off into space. And she looked back over, like, she like this. And she looked back over at me, was still shocked in her face and said, Are you sure? Shake. Man. It was, it was one of the most intense, creepy moments of my entire life. So I won't keep describing that whole five hours. But basically what happened was she had been brutally, I hate using the word sexually assaulted. She had been brutally raped repeatedly by a family member uh, for a period of her youth. And she had totally dissociated blocked it out and it came up and it came up hard on her first session. Right. So, um, that can happen. I, the guy that I had that was there, uh, very, very experienced, been through a lot of sessions. And that guy said, that's the most intense thing I've ever seen. (laughs) And so like, literally like it, it was, it was my first session that I'd ever sat in and not like, I'd only done three sessions to that point. Uh, and so, I mean, <laughs> I was like, fuck, is this what it's normally like? No. No. Thank the God's like, I've never seen any, like, I've seen people remember stuff. Never like that. Like, she went back into it. That's also, incidentally, what I mean when I say these, these things can be re-traumatizing. If, could you imagine if she did that alone? Oh, like, but, um, so a lot of horrible shit came up. And, um... Now, I tell that story because I want you to understand that's, weirdly, that's both a worst case 
and the best case scenario. It's a worst case scenario. I mean, I don't think I have to explain how. Like she got fucking raped as like a six-year-old girl. Like like the worst shit you can imagine. It was probably worse, right? Uh, unless you've got just a horrible imagination. It, it, it was it just the stuff that she described and talked about in there. And she wouldn't even talk about a lot of it. And it was very um, difficult for her. Uh, it, it was as bad as I've ever heard of. Like the type of stuff you're like, man, can this stuff actually happen? It did. And so, um, so yeah, that's horrible. But so, okay, so how could it be a best case scenario? Because that's the point of MDMA, right? She, this had happened to her. She had pushed it away, repressed it and pushed it away. But it had been, her entire life basically had been constructed around avoiding feeling that emotion. Like, this woman has so many fucking problems, man. Like, oh, I can't, I don't even get, get into it. But, like, her life was a fucking mess and a disaster. And the main reason is because that was there. That emotion, that trauma was there. And she had never faced it, felt it, uh, uh, dealt with. And so she did. Right? Uh, and now it wasn't just that session. Like, she's done a lot of sessions since then and a lot of work. And so where is she now? She's about three and a half years in. She's lost like 60 pounds or 80 pounds. Her, she used to have a whole, her, her daughter, my wife hated her. Now they have an amazing relationship. Um, she was, everything in her life is better. Everything. Like she has the life that she, she used to be so anxious all the time. So just, you know how anxious people dump their shit everywhere? She was one of those people. She didn't do any of that anymore. She's pleasant and joy to be around. Like, her life's incredible now, and it was miserable before. So that's why when people ask me what can go wrong, I like to tell that story because that's the picture a lot of people have of it going wrong, but that's also kind of what you want to happen, assuming if something terrible. Like, no one ever raped me, thank God. Um, I've had sessions that were maybe 60% as intense as hers, or what, like very, very intense, as intense as it gets for me. Um, they were rough, man. But that's not going wrong. That's kind of the point. So that's why I emphasize in the guide so much. This is what you do this medicine for is to bring up the stuff you're running from. Next, next question. What types of traumas can psychedelics treat effectively? I'm going to say all of them. There's going to be like nitpickers and autistic nerds who are going to argue with that. Okay, fine. How about effectively all of them? Uh, now, I want to... There's something about the way this question is phrased. What types of traumas can psychedelics treat? Let me, let me reframe this for you. Psychedelics don't treat trauma. Okay? I might have been a little unclear about this. Psychedelics are a tool to help open a space in you where you can feel your, your emotions, the emotions from your traumas, and then let those emotions go after you felt them so that they no longer control you or impact you in a negative way, right? And if you want to call that treating, cool. But as long as you understand that you are doing the work, not the psychedelic, right? I, I, again, a metaphor I like is um, a hammer, right? Like I, I'm in a house, right? If I use a hammer to build this house, you wouldn't ask me, how did a hammer build that house? I mean, what the hell are you talking about? I, I used a hammer to drive in nails that built the house, right? So the hammer is important to building the house. The hammer doesn't build the house. The hammer is a tool that I use to build the house. Psychedelics are a tool you can use to treat your own stuff. Make sense? Good. 
Um, next question. How destabilizing is the period between MDMA sessions? This is a great question. I wish I could give you an exact answer. There isn't one. It totally depends. Uh, it can be extremely destabilizing, though. Just, I, I, I want to, I'm going to give you the worst case scenario first, or sort of worst case. Uh, if you have built an edifice of behaviors around avoiding your trauma, that if you've built a life that requires you to be totally dissociated, not feeling your emotions, busy all the time, um, you know, like if you're one of those, it's entirely possible that you do psychedelics and then you don't want to do any of that shit anymore. And that's going to ruin your life in that the life you built was reliant upon you having a lot of behaviors that are avoiding emotion. Well, if you start feeling your emotion, just straight up, your whole life is going to have to change. Now, it doesn't have to all change at once. It usually doesn't. Like, I don't know a lot of people who do one psychedelic session and it's like, oh, everything's going to change now. And they, they start radically changing everything right away. That does happen. Usually not on MDMA, though. It, the times I've seen that happen is someone will do like LSD or mushrooms or ayahuasca and they'll come back and like sell everything they own. And that usually happens on psychedelics and usually then intense psychedelics. And also, even when that happens, it's they knew that they knew that that was going to happen. Like they knew it was just the trigger for it. Right. Um, but to be clear, it can be very destabilizing. hundred percent. Like you are changing and you are intentionally changing. And that change leads to chaos for at least a short period. Next, is there a value in psychedelic medicine for those who do not have any trauma to work through? Oh, bless your heart. <laughs> I love people. People who say, I don't have any trauma, uh, are always the people with a ton of trauma. Always, without exception. <laughs> like my buddy, I, I, he wouldn't mind if I, I say his name because he talks about this in his book, Love and Drugs. My buddy, Jeff Hayes, when I met him, I was talking about MDMA therapy and he looked at me, he goes, I don't have any trauma. And then he started laughing. He goes, what am I talking about? He had a son die of cancer. His mom died when he was 12. <laughs> it's like, dude, that's what he even, he started laughing. He's like, why did I even say that? Um, look, I, I'm going to give two answers to this. The first answer is there's no fucking way you don't have any trauma. If, if You're lying. To, if you're watching this, you have trauma. You're lying to yourself if you don't. It might not be a lot. It might be a little bit, right? Or it might be a ton and you're comparing yourself to someone who's got like the most ever. That's a different question. That's a whole different set of issues. Uh, you have trauma, so just stop. And whatever trauma you have is valid, even if it's a little bit, right? And I don't even know how you judge that, just as comparison, which is foolish. Um, now, uh, okay, the next one, I will say, it is entirely possible, for everyone suffers trauma in life. That is unavoidable. You cannot avoid that. Life is suffering, right? now. Is it possible that someone used another modality to work through their trauma? Totally. Psychedelics are not the only modality to work through your issues. Not at all. They're not even the best. I don't know how you define best, but for some people, they're not that great. For me, they were fantastic. They were just a tool, though. Again, like you build a whole house, you need a hammer. It's not the only tool you use. You need screwdrivers. You need, um, you know, sanding paper. You need uh, saws. You need a lot of different tools. It's one tool. Uh, but uh, if you've already worked through all your trauma, you might not need psychedelics to do it because you've already done it, right? Okay, that, that's a different question, but you have trauma. Just stop with that, all right? Which actually is really, it gets to the next question. How do I know if I've experienced trauma? Okay, that's a little bit of a better question. Let me just tell you, you have. 
if you're a human and you're alive, you've experienced trauma. Now, this being said, I want to differentiate. There are two major types of trauma, and this is where a lot of people get hung up. There's life trauma, and then there's what I call human trauma, okay? Let's, let's start with the human trauma is the trauma that comes inherent, it comes with being a human. So every human has it. Like the major trauma of being a human is having to deal with the knowledge that you're going to die, right? Like mortality. I don't care. You can have avoided all your life trauma. You cannot avoid that because you are human. There are a couple of other human traumas, right? Um, there's a great book called The Worm at the Core that really talks about this. Um, uh, where the authors sort of uh, postulate is that everything human, every problem human ha- humans have is from avoiding um, the idea they're going to die. I don't think that's true. That is every problem that very healthy. That's a lot of problems. So regardless of what your life has been like, you have that trauma, right? You don't have to have, use psychedelics to deal with it, but you have to deal with it. Life trauma is different. Life trauma is what happens to you specifically, right? So like my wife and I, both of us have life trauma. She thought she had a horrible life and like the worst mother ever and all this sort of stuff until she saw my life and she saw my mom and my dad. And she was like, oh, wow. She's like, yeah, I definitely had issues with my parents, but I, I didn't realize what it, what it was really like or how bad it could get. And then I'm... Looking at her like, oh, you think I have a bad? You should meet my friend Javon. <laughs> like his dad was a pimp. His mom was one of his dad's whores. Like he had way worse than me. Um, so like life trauma, we all, I, I, I'm, and then there's also, honestly, I think we, we live in a traumatizing society, which I could go to, that's a whole different discussion. Um, if someone asks, how do I know if I experienced trauma? I'm going to tell you, you did, right? The only question is, how much of it is human trauma versus life trauma. And most people is way more life trauma than they realize. Um, how much, and then how much have you dealt with? Yeah. Yeah. And it's okay. This is just honestly, in a lot of ways, I kind of think that's the point part, part of, this is a whole different discussion, but I think a huge point of life is um, using suffering as an opportunity to um, achieve enlightenment, to put it simplistically. But I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now. That's a whole different thing. Next question. What do you say to someone who's afraid of losing their issues? In essence, that by getting rid of their traumas and neuroses that arise from the traumas, they're going to lose a part of themselves. Like the quote, if my devils are to leave me, I'm afraid my angels will take flight as well. This is an awesome question. I suffered through this deeply. Uh, when I was writing, I hope this is your beer in hell, and then the, you know, the sequels, um, Askles Finish First and Hilarity Ensues, I was afraid to start therapy. Because I'm like, if I start, what if I start therapy and I lose my power? I, I'm dead serious. Like, I knew I was writing books from a very dysfunctional place. So, like, if I get functional, how the hell can I write those books? And you know what? Uh, just being honest, I sit here at 46, happy, healthy, not totally healed by any stretch, or I'm not, I haven't achieved enlightenment, but I'm like, I'm so far down the path compared to where I was. Let's say I was finishing those books around 34. 35, 36, I, I'm like light years ahead of that, right? So I have dealt with, on a scale of one to 10 of fucked up, let's say 10 being the most, one being none, just for me, right? I'm not necessarily comparing myself to others. If I was an eight or a nine or a seven then, I'm like a 
two or three now, right? I'm so not fucked up now compared to then. And um, the truth is, I couldn't write any of those fucking stories now. I couldn't. I really couldn't. Like, I was right. I was worried that if I was got too healed, I wouldn't be able to, to do that stuff. And I was right. Now, I was worried if I started therapy, I wouldn't be able to write the books at all. That's silly. It's taken me a decade, uh, you know, years of talk therapy, years of psychedelics to kind of get to a healed space. But, like, I don't even remember. Man, I read I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell now. I just read a story from it the other day um, that I hadn't read in years. And it's funny. Like, I'm a funny dude. But I'm also like, oh, man, that dude's so messed up. Like, and I, I like, it's hard for me to even imagine that level of consciousness anymore. Like, I, that's me. I wrote that. I remember it. But it's still hard for me to even imagine that now. And so, um, yeah, I would worry about that. It's a concern. But here's the thing. One of my favorite quotes, this is actually in one of my old books, is St. Augustine. Um, he, he was right. He wrote about this in his memoirs and I'm, I'm totally paraphrasing it wrong. Basically the quote is something like, um, Lord, give me chastity and continence, but not yet. Like he was, St. Augustine was like a party guy in his day. And, um, he, if you like your neuroses and your trauma and you like where you are now and you're not ready to let go, don't, I'm serious. So many people are like, oh, you have to do this. Fuck that. You don't have to do any of this. You don't have to do psychedelic medicine. You don't have to get healed. You don't have to raise your conscious level. You don't have to. That's bullshit. And even if you want to, you don't have to do it right now. If you really like where you are, stay. I have a friend. Um, he sleeps three hours a night. This dude is riddled with trauma. Like I, his story, I'm not going to tell any of his stories because you'd figure out who it is because he's kind of well known. But... um. <laughs> dude so real with trauma man like I, it, it's hard for me to be around him he's so anxious and so neurotic has so much trauma and it spills out even though he's a great dude brilliant i really like him as a person it's hard at this point in my life it's hard for me to be around him because i can just feel he and he's so riddled with trauma he can't sleep and he he, he did a facebook post about this once and i was like kind of joking i'm like dude the problem is not your sleep. It's nothing, it has nothing to do with sleep hygiene. You got to deal with your shit. And kind of jokingly, he's like, yeah, he goes, I, I kind of know that. But you know what? I like how my life works now. I'm making it work. I, I don't want to change. And I was like, awesome. Cool. Like, so the last thing I do is I'm not trying to change that dude. Like if he wants help, you can come to me or someone else. And yeah, different thing. he doesn't want help. He wants to stay where he is. It's totally fine. He's not hurting really I don't want to say he's not hurting anybody. He has a lot of kids, but whatever. That's he, he gets to decide what he's going to do in his life, and that's okay. So if, if you, I'm going to tell you, you are going to lose your issues, which is awesome, but also has a downside that you may want to consider. And uh, if you're not ready to do the work, don't. The next question is very related to the last one. Should I be worried about my drive and ambition disappearing if I do MDMA therapy? All right, so that's a little different than losing issues, right? Um, that's why I'm going to answer these separately. Yes, but not in the way you think. So look at me, right? So, at you know, I started writing at 27. I was very famous selling millions of books by 30, 31, 32. Um, 31, 32. And... Uh, 
I had a ton of driving ambition then. I have a ton now, 15 years later. The difference is my drive and ambition comes from a healthy place, a nurturing place, a conscious, a, a psychologically and emotionally conscious place. I was fucking miserable then in a lot of ways. And a lot of my drinking and my partying and all that and hooking up with a ton of girls was a way to avoid those emotions. Now I feel my emotions, right? Um, in my experience, drive and ambition do not disappear, but they come from a different place, right? It comes from a different place. And that is a very big shift, right? It's sort of like, imagine you're on a bicycle and you're going, you know, you can go whatever, 30 miles an hour on a bicycle. And, and I tell you, hey, listen, I've got, uh, just this is a metaphor, right? I've got an internal combustion engine over here and you can go 100 miles an hour in it, right? Uh, and you say, well, or I, you can go way faster. And so uh, you say, well, am I going to lose my speed if I come off the bicycle? I'm like, well, yeah, you have to get off. Right? <laughs> I can't just hop over. So you're going to stop for a second. And then you're going to get in and it's going to be a different machine. And it's going to fuel differently, et cetera, et cetera. But um, you can go way faster. Oh, okay. Yeah, the metaphor actually breaks down because it should, you could also make the metaphor go the other way. You could say, oh, you're in a car and you switch into a bike. It's human powered. Blah. The point is, no, your driving ambition will not completely disappear. But yes, where they come from is probably going to shift. And that may, that may be destabilizing at first. It may feel like they go away for a while. Because look, here's, here's the, the reality. The vast majority of people who have drive and ambition, who are trying to achieve stuff, they're doing it as a way to avoid their emotions. So when you start feeling your emotions, when you deal with your shit, you do kind of have to reset your whole life. Now, you can do this slowly, right? It's taken me four years. Um, but yeah, it wakes you up. And it requires change. It's, it forces change. So if you don't want to change, don't do it. All right. Next question. Is there a specific type of therapist I should look for to help me with integration? No. Um, any therapist that you connect with and you trust is probably going to be pretty good. There are three modalities that um, the therapists, I think, tend in general to do better with psychedelic uh, integration work. Somatic experiencing, which is like a therapeutic orientation. Somatic experiencing, NARM, N-A-R-M, which is a, it's just like a, I don't want to get into, take too long to explain, um, or IFS, internal family systems. Those are the three that I would look for. Um, now, that being said, the dude I use is not certified in any of those three, um, doesn't use any of those three modalities. He's just great for me. So um, if you're unsure, look for someone in one of those three modalities. The basic thing with those modalities is that they, they tend to be very trauma-informed and they tend to understand emotion, feeling, connection to the body, all that kind of stuff. They're not the only ones, though. Um, not by any stretch. Next question. Can your therapist also be your guide? I would highly, highly recommend against that. Um, I think I talked about that in the beginner's guide, but if not, the reason is because generally speaking, you want your therapist to be a completely safe place where you can go without judgment to say or do anything, um, uh, someone who's totally on your side. And, and a guide will be similar, but 
what a lot of people like about a guide is that um, they don't have any relationship with them often except for like the medicine facilitator. So it's like they can go and they can be totally vulnerable there and they can do anything they want there. And then it's their uh, say anything, experience anything. And then it's their choice that they take it out of the psychedelic session. Right. Whereas if your therapist is also your guide, you are making yourself extremely vulnerable uh, to them, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that a lot of people, some people really don't like that. Um, the other, there's also a couple of other issues. Most therapists aren't psychedelic. They don't have psychedelic experience. They're not certified. They're, it, it's not, they're not going to do it quite frankly. Right. Um, most, I do know a few therapists who also do psychedelic sessions. All of them, just about all of them, uh, tend to not guide for people who are therapy patients, right? And, and the reason is, is like what I said, like they like to have a wall between those two worlds, um, both for them and the patient. Not impossible. I'm saying it's just uncommon. How does psychedelic medicine compare to just doing traditional talk therapy? They're apples and oranges. They're, they're totally different. And, and I think they complement each other extremely well. They're just not at all. Psychedelic medicine is one sort of, like if you take MDMA, you do one therapy session and that's it, right? Or you can do more, but it's contained in that, in that moment. Whereas talk therapy is an ongoing thing. I will tell you, I can't say I many people who, very experienced with talk therapy that I know. Very experienced with talk therapy. Went and did an MDMA session and were like, oh my God, this is like five years of therapy in an afternoon. That's the experience a lot of people have. It really is. So, Do you still feel heavy shame or negative emotions when tough memories come up? Yeah, of course. <laughs> that's what the tough memory, that's why they come up, right? Um, does MDMA help alleviate these emotions? Okay, I understand what this is asking. So... Let me give an example. Ugh, I don't want to talk about this, right, but I will. This is a could, heavy shame and tough emotions. So um, a t one of the uh, tough memories for me is um, basically my mom didn't want me, right? At least at certain points in her life and certain points in our, rela in our relationship, she very explicitly rejected me. And um, as you can imagine, that's... <laughs> Mother rejection for anybody is tough. It was hard. And um, before, before I had ever, before I did psychedelic therapy, intellectually, I knew my mom. You know, I knew all this. Nothing has, not much of anything has come up on psychedelic therapy, psychedelic medicine that didn't come up in therapy in terms of events, right? But um, like I knew my mom didn't want me six years ago. That's not new. What was new is feeling the emotion, right? So feeling the shame and feeling all the stuff. So the, the first time I really got there in an MDMA session, it wasn't an, an MDMA session. It was rough, man. Like I felt it. I felt the grief. I felt all, it was just a lot, right? Like all the stuff that, that I had never felt that in that session, I felt it. Now, now it's two years later, let's say, um, yeah, I mean, the events still happened, but the heavy shame and negative emotions that I felt during the session, I felt them. So I was able to let them go. 
Yeah, I mean, it still hurts that that my mom didn't want me, but it's like it went from this much hurt to this much, right? Almost like from a wound to a scar is what um, that's what MDMA treatment did. It didn't alleviate is the wrong word because alleviate feels like like you take ibuprofen to alleviate pain. It's not like that. Ibuprofen dampens pain. MDMA brings the emotion up, right? But the thing is, once you feel it, you can let it go. I keep saying that. Like, I hope you understand this is the most important thing. The point of psychedelic medicine is to feel these emotions so that you can then let them go. Okay? You don't let, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Doesn't mean you don't feel anything. It just means the powerful, overwhelming emotions you can feel and let go. All right. Uh, I've done two sessions and I feel like things are worse after doing MDMA and psilocybin. How can you tell you're actually making progress? So I I was very clear about this in the guide. Things often get worse. False. Things often get harder before they get better, right? Not worse. It's sort of like you go to the gym, you work out really hard, you're sore the next day. You're like, oh, this is terrible. Like I didn't even lose weight. Now now I'm all sore. Well, yeah, it takes time, right? Uh, Same thing with this. Um, What I would say just generally is it's if you've done two sessions and things feel worse, that means a lot has come up, right? So uh, generally speaking, do your integration work. Do as much therapy as you can. Do as much journaling as you need to. As much true self-care as you can. Feel the emotions you need to feel. Um, and you will get through. I, I had a, a, a period where um, I had a lot of grief in my life. And I didn't realize it until I started psychedelic medicine. And there was about a year where it didn't matter what medicine I did. And it didn't matter what was going on in my life. It was grief coming up. And like not a little bit grief. <laughs> the first time I ever did a, a LSD therapy, I took like a little bit, 50 micrograms, which is not a, not a microdose, but, but like a, a very, very low dose. Like what's called a museum dose where you can kind of feel it, but it's not heavy. Um, and I laid on the sofa for like nine hours and did nothing but have heaving, racking, full body sobs. Like the deepest grief I'd ever felt in my life to that point. Um, <laughs> it was horrible, man. It was so bad. But like it, it, was, it was so intense. But my God, three weeks later, I felt like a million dollars. Now, this was like a year or so into my journey. So um, I had some experience, but a uh, year and a half. And it was like the next year. It was just nothing but grief. I just had a lot of grief I had to feel. <sighs> um, and I still, I just did a session, and just an MDMA session uh, not too long ago. And there was a lot of stuff that came up. This, you know, some of it was hard. It's challenging, truly. Um, and there are times you are going to go through darkness. But understand that you've already survived it. It's there in you. All you're doing is bringing it up so you can get it up. Next, what if my psychologist is not in favor of me doing psychedelics? Um, you have a bad psychologist. Now, hold on. They're bad because if someone, if a psych, if some, if your therapist is judging you for doing psychedelics, literally their entire job is to provide a safe space for you to, um, to be. Right? So if you make this decision like, no, you shouldn't do this, that's, what that, that's, that's nonsense. 
Now, that being said, um, a lot of therapists don't understand, honestly, what psychedelics do or all that sort of stuff. Although it's changing radically. It's funny. Probably five years ago, a lot of therapists were really worried about psychedelics. Uh, honestly, because if you really asked them, and I had one admit this to me, they were afraid that like psychedelics would make them unnecessary. What's actually happened is the opposite. Uh, psychedelics have opened people up. And every therapist I know now, every, like every single one who has patients that do psychedelic medicine, uh, that like they're all incredibly thankful for this because their patients are now coming in making serious real progress. Like be, not, it's not only because the psychedelics open them up, all the stuff comes up and then they come in and I have a ton to talk about. They, they're, it's easier to make progress. They're more open to it, more accessible. Um, every therapist I know, many of them have done psychedelics themselves. Some have not are all very grateful for uh, the impact that psychedelics have had on their patients. So if your psychologist is not in favor of it, um, the question is, how are they not in favor? If they're judgmental of you, they're a bad therapist, just straight up. That's any therapist who is judgmental of a patient in a thing like that is not doing their job. You should find a new therapist. If they don't understand psychedelics, or they think psychedelics might not be appropriate for you for, for specific educated reasons, because psychedelics are not for everyone. That's a different question, right? Or they just don't know enough. Then um, I would honestly tell them to, to get the, the book A Dose of Hope or any. There's a ton of stuff, good stuff about it now. And read about uh, uh, psychedelic medicine. Um, that's probably what I would recommend. I'm trying to think if I've heard any other issues around this. Yeah, it, your, your psychologist or therapist may be warning you against specific issues with psychedelic medicine for you because they know you well. That's a different thing. I can't comment on that specifically like because that might be actually really good. There are people I know who psychedelic medicine is not going to be good for them, right? And so like, I'm not that I'm a therapist, but that, that's a different thing. So if that's what's going on, then uh, that's an issue to talk about with your therapist about you specifically, which is different. Uh, next, are talk therapists trained in helping psychedelic integration? No, uh, uh, none of them are, uh, like in schooling. Several I know have gotten psychedelic integration training or have done their own work. So I would just ask them, like bring it up um, and, and see. Uh, uh, I, in my experience, you don't really need psychedelic integration training to be a good therapist for someone going through psychedelic medicine. Um, maybe it, it helps to have done some of the work to, to relate to your patient a little better, but what's really, all the psychedelics are doing is opening you up, is opening a space in you so for you to feel your emotions. Good therapists are all about feeling emotions, understanding emotions, processing emotions. So psychedelics are just a tool, no different than yoga. Like imagine if you said, you know, our talk therapist trained in helping people deal with, you know, issues from meditation. They don't need to be. The good ones help people deal with the people issues. That makes sense. Next question. What if I choose to do psychedelics, but my partner won't do them or doesn't want me to do them? What could happen? All right. These are two different questions. If you want to do psychedelic medicine and your partner doesn't want to, that's fine. No big deal. We're all on our own journeys. Okay. Like, in fact, I would tell you, it's not a good idea to pressure your partner to do something they don't want to do right? That's just in any space, not just psychedelics. 
But um, there's I, I don't see a necessary problem with that. Someone wants to do that work. Other people don't. Okay. Now, I will tell you, I have seen a lot of situations where one person did a lot of psychedelic work and made a lot of progress, you know, and it did their integration work, everything. The other person didn't, and they grew apart. That totally happens. I have seen situations where one person went down that path, the other person didn't want to at first, then they decided to when they saw the change. I've seen uh, one partner go down that path, the other partner decided to take other modalities, and they both made a lot of progress just using different modalities. That also works. Any of those things can work, and they're all fine. That's if the question is, what does my partner, my partner doesn't want to do them. It's different if your partner says, I don't want you to do this. That's a different thing. Right? What they decide to do for themselves is one question. What they tell you they want you to do is different. I think that gets back to the therapist question. Right? Why are they telling you they don't want you to do them? Right? It, that, I think that the answer to this question, what do I do if my partner tells me they don't want me to do them? It, it, the answer to the question is 100% determined on why they're telling you that. Right? Like if you have heart issues, and there's certain heart issues, AFib, et cetera, that MDMA uh, counterindicates for, but it's not an obvious no. It can, it's kind of up to the patient. If you have heart issues like, like AFib and you're, let's say you're a dude and your wife doesn't want to risk you to risk it. Okay. Well, that's, she cares about you. You know, like she, uh, she might be right. I don't know that that's a different thing. Uh, or that's one thing. Another thing is, and I've absolutely seen this, even people who are miserable don't necessarily want to change. I, I know right now, like a good friend of mine, um, he is going, beginning his trauma treatment journey. His wife does not want him to do this. And not because of any medical reason. They're both pretty traumatized. Um, she don't want to change. And she's afraid if he changes, she's going to lose. She hasn't really admitted this, but this is just pretty obvious. And um, I mean, it's I, I say I get it. I like I... I don't necessarily agree with her position, but I get it. Like, I can understand from where she is why she feels that way. Um, that's a tough question. There isn't a right or wrong answer there. The thing that I always try to tell people, uh, that, that I always tell people is, look, you can't do anyone else's work. You've got to decide what you want to do and what's right for you. And Yeah, talk about it with your partner. I'm a big believer in complete, open, uh, honest, full you know, discussions with partners. But um, I'm going to do what I want to do and what's best for me and what moves me forward in the way I want to go. If my partner doesn't, she doesn't, you know, and that would suck. I'm talking about me and my wife. It would suck if she didn't want to do her work or she didn't want to grow the way I, I want to. But um, I've decided that I am going to live my life my way, the way I want to. Um, yeah, of course I consider her, right? my kids, etc. They're, they're all relevant people in my life. They're very relevant. But um, I'm not going to sacrifice who and what I am, the core of it, for anyone else. If you want to do that, you can. I, I'm not going to. And there's not a right or wrong answer here. Sometimes these issues can get hard. Uh, like, I don't know what my friend's going to do. Like, he's just started on this path, and he's seeing amazing progress. And... It's funny because he he gets he keeps calling me. He's like upset that she's like she's sabotaging me, and I'm like, dude, she's not. I know his wife. She's a very nice woman. Like she's fantastic. She's not sabotaging him. She's just deeply afraid of losing him, and so her reactions are about her, not about him. It feels like sabotage to him, right? but it's not really what it is. Um, but that's 
that's a long, deep discussion. It's difficult. Um, I would talk about it with your partner and with your therapist and then find your way forward. Uh, all right. You have said your wife, uh, you have your wife in your sessions with you in the guide. Yes. Can you explain why you do that? Great question. Not everyone does this. Um, my wife and I have a very close, very tight relationship. I trust her probably more than I trust anyone else on earth. Um, we are very, I, I lean on her for a lot and vice versa. Um, and I really like having her there when I'm that open and vulnerable. Uh, one, because I even trust her more than the guide. She know, I mean, she's a medical professional. She knows me. She knows my body. She knows all my stuff. So like there've been a lot of situations where she was more additive than the guy just because the guy didn't know me very well um, or didn't know me as well as she does. Right. And then also like, uh, then I just love her and I'm connected to her and I want to be around her. You know, like everyone says they love their wife and they love their family. I actually like my wife and I like my family and I like to be around them. And she means so much to me. Um, I want her there. I have kids and a job and a lot to do. Yeah, I, I get you. Is it realistic to do this therapy while also upholding work and family responsibilities? That's also a great question. There's two answers. Yes, it totally is. Uh, number two, but but two, don't expect everything just stays the same. Like this is, for most people, psychedelic medicine is extremely destabilizing in a lot of areas, at least over time, definitely. Sometimes in a short period. Um, it is realistic to do this therapy, but also understand that like, don't do this therapy if you just want everything to stay the same, except this therapy. That's not how it works. It's never how it works. Right now. I'm not saying you have to quit your job. If you have a job you really like, and it's great and it's healthy, cool. And same with your family. You might have a ton of stuff come up, but it doesn't have anything to do with your work and family. It has to do with maybe your childhood or other stuff. And it's going to impact work and family, but it's not about that. Okay. Yeah. I got a good friend who loves his job. He's awesome at it. He should be doing it the rest of his life. Amazing family. They have an incredible relationship. He's real fucked up from his past. He has a seriously traumatic childhood. And he has dealt with maybe 10% of it. And he does like one session a year. And man, he's just off kilter for at least a week after each session. So like, I'm like, listen, he does a session and he takes time off. And it's it's hard. Yeah, he uses a lot of his vacation from his job. <laughs> like have to just sit and be by himself. That's the price he pays for healing. But by the way, in the last three years, he's, I mean, he's 10 times the father he was, you know, and he was already a great father. So it is realistic, but understand like, it's not just cut and paste. It's rough. You're going to have to make sacrifices and, and, and figure out the right way to do it for you. Next, what's the end game? Is there a point where you don't need therapy anymore? Can you actually heal all of your trauma? Uh, do you get to the place you don't need the medicine when you're healed? How do you know when you're done? All right, these are all great questions. Um, yes, you can totally be healed of life trauma. That usually is first. And then remember I talk about life and human trauma? If you get healed of human trauma, then you're like, you're Buddha level. <laughs> like you're Jesus, Buddha, Krishna level, right? Like that's enlightened. Um, or this is a permanent state of alignment. So you can get there. Uh, I'm not there. <laughs> but uh, now, in terms of life trauma, I don't know where I am on the path. I know I've gone a long, long distance. And I think I've, I'm definitely past halfway. <laughs> Man, if I'm not past halfway at this point, fuck it, I'm done. No, I, I'm past halfway. 
I don't know if I'm 40% done or, or, or 40% left or 10%, somewhere in there. Um, but like I already, uh, I, mean, I, I use way less medicine now than I did at the beginning. I, like I was pretty aggressive. Now, hardly any. Um, plus, I've, I've started to become a self-correcting, like a self-healing uh, organism almost, right? Like so much of what like hard work I had to do, you know, like uh, write about and therapy and what, now it's like I'm seeing it myself and I'm fixing it myself in real time or avoiding it altogether. The end game is, first of all, you can stop this anytime, but the, if you want to go all the way through, let's just say if he, using psychedelic medicine to heal life trauma, let's just say that, totally an end game. I'm four years in, I had a lot of sh shit to deal with and I'm, I'm nearly done. So uh, there's totally a point. You can absolutely get to a point where you don't need therapy anymore. Yes. Not easy and not quick. But yes. Any advice on how to identify and feel my emotions? <laughs> Dude. <laughs> how much time do we have? Go read the book, uh, How to Do the Work, by Dr. Nicole LaPera. I, I recommend it in the guide. Um, that or A Dose of Hope, too. Go read those. That's such a big question. I, I don't even know where to start on it. It's a, it's a great question. Like, at first, I was like, what kind of idiot question is this? I'm like, oh, it's actually fucking brilliant. If you're really dissociated, disconnected, that's that's the question. Start with those two books. And then come back to me if you need more help. Uh, three more. Have you had bad experiences with psychedelics? Uh, <laughs> man, no. Uh, only because every experience I needed was what I needed to move forward. But, yeah, I've had a lot of very rough challenges. Experiences. I talked about a lot of them in the guide and already in this Q&A. Um, yeah, she can get very rough though. Yes, it can get bad. But that's the point. Uh, next, um, I know you took a lot from your first few MDMA sessions. Do you think it would have been the same if you'd done them before uh, you did your years of talk therapy? I'm wondering if I should do a lot of talk therapy before I do psychedelics. Great question. I went faster than most people in psychedelic medicine because I had such a strong base. I do not think it is necessary at all. It's really just a question of what you want. Is it? Even though you do this, next question, even though you do this for healing and therapy, what kind of mind expansion and enlightenment have you experienced? Oh man, so much. Uh, I, I, I almost can't even talk about it with people who haven't done psychedelics because all of it sounds fucking insane. <laughs> like, all of it. All, uh, all of it sounds insane. Uh, even to me now, a lot of it is like, wow. Like even experiences that I've had, that I know I had, that are real. I'm like, did that happen? Yeah, that happened. Whoa, that was nuts. Um, so I'm not quite ready to really go deep and talk about the enlightenment stuff yet, the mind expansion stuff. Uh, I will soon. Not now. Now we're going to talk about healing and trauma. Although that is it. That's the end of the questions. Thank you uh, for the questions. If you have any others, send them in. I think this covers just about everything. I may end up turning all this into a book later on if people really like this and care. Uh, and if you got other uh, questions or need help or need referral to a guide, just let me know. I'll hook you up. Thank you.